This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The heat of battle. Ottawa says it will not budge on its price exemption for home heating oil, despite concern from experts who say it is weakening the government's carbon pricing plan. A cabinet minister tells us why. He can no longer stand by on standby. Pakistan is expelling undocumented Afghans. So a man who helped the Canadian military fight the Taliban is more desperate than ever for Ottawa to stop delaying and bring his family to Canada. Prison broken, Canada's correctional investigator says he is frustrated that year after year, despite promises and plans, Indigenous people are still vastly overrepresented in the country's prisons. Feeding time at the zucchini, an Ontario man stretches himself to the limit, stretching a zucchini to the limit, and his efforts have borne impressive fruit, which is what a zucchini is. Botanically speaking, I looked it up. Phoning it in, an Ontario man has been collecting antique telephones for more than a decade now, but even with 400 of them, he says he has no plans to dial his passion back. And varmint condition. No one told the rats that Alberta is rat-free because they've infested two Calgary recycling plants. But the woman tasked with getting rid of them insists it's no big feat to get rid of their little feet. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that hopes she'll be on her pest behavior. Not sure how they heat the House of Commons, but it's getting uncomfortably warm in there for the government because of its exemptions to the carbon tax. The issue dominated question period again today. Opposition MPs demanded the Liberal government expand the break it gave on home heating oil, which is used by many people in Atlantic Canada, to all home heating fuels. Earlier this week, we spoke with Saskatchewan Cabinet Minister Dustin Duncan. This isn't just the Saskatchewan issue. I think it's uh, affecting everybody across the country. And so we're really just looking for that fairness. Um, We've indicated that if that doesn't come to fruition, that uh, we would stop collecting the carbon tax. Up until a week ago, or less than a week ago now, this was not an issue. The Prime Minister has uh, has made it a problem. It's a problem of of Justin Trudeau's making. And so now it's up to uh, the Prime Minister to fix this. Saskatchewan Cabinet Minister Dustin Duncan. Sean Fraser is the Federal Housing Minister. His writing is in Nova Scotia. We reached him today in Ottawa. Minister Fraser, Dustin Duncan says there is a fairness problem here. What do you say to that? Well, you have to understand where the rationale comes for the uh, policy shift. And it comes from the fact that heating oil is extremely polluting and extremely expensive. It's essential as well to understand that there's not one region that benefits from a policy that targets home heating oil. Although a large number of people in my region in Atlanta, Canada, rely on home heating oil and are paying an exorbitant price of energy as a result, Mm -hmm. in Ontario, we have about 267,000 homes in Quebec, uh, nearly 465,000 in Western Canada, 117,000 homes, partly or fully. But you hear what he's saying, that, that, that they're not getting any exemptions, they're not getting any breaks, why should any other part of the country? They're saying that it's unfair and that there's a two-tier system here. Well, I would disagree with that characterization. It's it's clear to me that the program has a national application. Regardless of where you live, if you use home heating oil, you're going to benefit from the changes uh, that allow you to have a free heat pump paid for to reduce your cost of energy by, in some instances, thousands of dollars a year. And that's true whether you live in Atlantic Canada or you live in the prairies. Uh, it has a national application, and that's uh, intentional. Minister Duncan said Saskatchewan will likely stop collecting carbon fees on natural gas in January if nothing changes, if the government doesn't reverse course or give them some sort of uh, exemption. So what is your government planning to do then? Well, the federal law will require uh, what it has required previously. And my hope and expectation is that governments and individuals from across the country uh, will choose to uh, obey laws as they exist, regardless of which level of government has put them in place. But I think it's really important to understand that this policy has national application uh, based on the use of home heating oil, regardless of where you are. 
there are different policies the government puts in place that may have a greater impact on one region over another. In the prairies, we tend to have more agricultural spending. In Atlantic Canada, we tend to have more fisheries spending. And uh, the same is true in different policy areas when we try to target very specific needs. And here we're trying to target the need to transition people away from home heating oil because of the extreme pollution it causes and the exorbitant costs on households. But separate from that that criticism that this is creating a two-tier system and that this is unfair, there are others, including former Environment Minister Catherine McKenna, who are very concerned about this this move and are concerned that this is putting your own carbon pricing plan in jeopardy. She told The Globe, quote, that the Liberals are lurching on climate change uh, policy and, quote, it's not true that carbon pricing is the problem. The problem is the massive profits that gas companies are making. Uh, and others have raised similar criticisms that this is a miscalculation by your uh, government. Th- Catherine is a a dear friend for whom I have uh, extraordinary respect and admiration, and she's an absolute climate champion. And I worked very closely with her as her parliamentary secretary when we put in place the price on pollution that uh, applies nationally today. I agree with her assessment that the main cause of the increased cost of home heating fuel was, was never the price on pollution. It was, in fact, the extreme inflation of the price of oil itself which, again, is costing many of my neighbors thousands of dollars a year. But the reason that there's an exemption on pricing baked into the suite of policies designed to transition people away from home heating oil to heat pumps is that we've taken the solution out of the market. The government is solving this problem by direct intervention, by actually covering the cost of heat pumps completely for low-income households, and by creating a no-cost loan that will allow people to pay it off over time at the same time that their energy bill is reduced. So effectively, month to month, uh, they will be paying less. When you take the solution out of the market, it obviates the need to have a market-based mechanism, in this case, the price on pollution. Uh, So I agree with her assessment that the problem was never the price on pollution. However, we've arrived at a different way to solve the same problem. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, though, if other provinces start taking Saskatchewan's position on this and demand exemptions or say that they're going to withhold payment? Well, we're actually starting to see the different provinces now that they have come to understand that this always had national application are actually signing up to take part in the national program. Uh, We started initially with Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland, not because they come from one part of the country, but because those were the governments that agreed to co-fund and co-deliver a program to transition people to heat pumps. Now we are starting to see, as Minister Wilkinson shared in the House of Commons today, that the province of British Columbia and the new government in Manitoba have put their hands up to say that they want to be part of the program too. The reality is, regardless of where you live in the country, you deserve to have access to this program that has been made available initially to three Atlantic Mm -hmm. provinces and that we're now working with other provinces to sign on to as well. When we talk about the the timing though, again, your, your government is being accused of making a political calculation here, not an environmental one, to hold on to liberal ridings in Atlantic Canada. Are you worried about your own seat in Central Nova? Look, the things I worry about are the health of my family and the well-being of my community. When it comes to my efforts to uh, uh, hold on to my own seat, I find that focusing on the needs of my constituents is always what should drive me and other people who are... So this was a political calculation then? Uh, No, this is a policy that was driven to accomplish two things, to reduce pollution and to save people money. And I'm very confident it's going to do both of those things. I still believe in carbon pricing, and I believe that in most applications, carbon pricing has the potential to reduce our emissions and put more money in the pockets of families. When it comes to this specific decision to tackle home heating oil, we're able to get rid of a heavy source of pollution, and we're able to save people enormous amounts of money. The estimates that I've seen range from between $1,500 and $4,700 annually for families who make the transition away from home heating oil. My sense is that people in my community and other communities that will benefit will be happy if they see that the government is taking action to reduce pollution and to save families money. Uh, Those are priorities for me. They're priorities for my community, and I'll continue to advance them as priorities in the House of Commons. Minister Fraser, thank you for your time. A pleasure as always. Thank you so much for the conversation. Sean Fraser is the federal housing minister. He's in Ottawa.
For over a year and a half now, Mohammed Yunus Nassimi has been publicly voicing his frustration with the Canadian government. He worked with the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan. After the U.S. withdrawal and Taliban takeover in 2021, he fled the country. Since then, he's been waiting in neighboring Pakistan with his wife and six children for the government to approve their application to come to Canada. Now the wait has taken on a new urgency for the family. In a move that has been criticized by aid groups, Pakistan has moved to expel hundreds of thousands of undocumented Afghans. We reached Mohammed Yunus Nasimi in Islamabad. Mohammed, we are hearing people from Afghanistan are being detained and deported right now. How have you and your family been avoiding deportation so far? We have been uh, told to stay on the hotel and we are, for the past two and a half weeks, we're not even able to go outside to the streets, even if we need medication or medical assistance, we are not able to go outside. So we are staying on the rooms on the home at the moment. You have six children as well. How are you handling all of that? How are they handling all of this? It's very frustrating and very hard for us, but we have no choice. Uh, and we have no any other way. And this is, we have to live with it. Yeah. Of course, they're crying. Of course, they all make noise. And of course, we are trying our best, you know, to manage it somehow. But I'm telling them that, you know, somehow like may play with them or just tell them to, we are not able to go outside. There is danger outside, you know. So we convince them somehow, you know. You, you were speaking um, earlier this week to our colleague, Rafi Bujakanian, and you told him that police showed up at your door earlier this week. What did they say? Police were here, and mostly they go do the raid. They go to their homes, and whoever is undocumented like us, they just put them in the car and just uh, in the bus and um, uh, cross them, border cross them to Afghanistan. But when they came together, all the males uh, living in here, and we uh, requested them and we told them that you have to talk to IOM, which is uh, uh, responsible for us, or to the Embassy of Canada in Islamabad. You have to talk to them because we didn't tell them that we don't have visas, we don't have documents and stuff like that. Because if they know, they will directly come. They wouldn't care for anything. But we tell them whatever documents we had is all with the embassy, either with the IOM. So we don't hold that. And you have to go talk to them, not us. Because if you bother us here, their kids and their ladies, and they're all worried. The, uh, they asked for the uh, number of manager of the hotel, mm-hmm. and they got it, and they said that they will come back. Do you think they will? We don't know. They have not come back yet, and today is the first day that uh, the deadline. But we are worried, and we are frustrated, and we don't. You can never know. The deadline that you, that you mentioned is the deadline, Pakistan's deadline for undocumented migrants to leave, which which passed yes. yesterday, as you said. But what you're describing, it's it's this constant state of waiting and worrying. Uh, it's impossible yeah. to imagine for most of us. It has been two years since I'm waiting here in Islamabad. So I can get my visas. And then there is a worry that somebody is going to catch you and put in a bus and give you to the same people that you have been running from. And all those two years, all those struggles, all those hardship that we have been through here, and it's all going to be for nothing. And you're going to lose your life anyway. You know, I don't know if the government of Canada is uh, feeling that or they, 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 they want to do something about it or not. But we are in a very difficult situation. Your relationship with the Canadian Armed Forces was one certainly built on um, work uh, and trust. Can you tell our listeners about that close relationship that you had and the kind of work you did? I've done a lot of stuff for them. And their contracts, which were very, very hard, and we were at the front line and fighting with them, with them to the enemies, shoulder by shoulder. And I was able to be on the base I was green badge and I could go to the base easily like like them. We were same. There was no difference between us. And I can I could never forget that that Canadians army are the best people in the world. And I respect that. And the work that we have done is too many, too many contracts. The only one that I was that I am proud of, there was one contract and I did save Canadians' life at that time. We had a contract to uh, survey a road. And then in that road, I have found a big bomb. And I reported. And then those Canadians 
they, they were admiring me and they told me, thank you very much and you saved Canadians' lives at that time. But right now, at the moment, our lives are at stake and nobody's there for us. You mentioned you've been there for two years now. You left Afghanistan in 2021. What are officials in Canada telling you about your application to come to Canada and why it hasn't been approved yet? What are they saying? The most and the big um, answer for them is that your case is, remains in progress. And whenever we tell them that what's going to happen to us, we are not, it's, it's, it's refugee cases. It's, it's cases that people's lives are a threat. So why you guys are not working on that? What, what is the problem? What makes what makes it so hard for you to make a decision? They said, we don't know. It's up to the embassy of uh, uh, Canada in uh, Abu Dhabi or in Islamabad, and we don't have anything else. That's where, that that's the answer why we call the Canadian immigration in Canada. And when we try to contact them here in uh, Islamabad or Abu Dhabi, they're saying the same thing, that your case remains in progress. When you think back to what you did in Afghanistan for the Canadian Armed Forces uh, and where you are now, how do you yeah, know, how, how do you process that? I did talk to one of your colleagues, uh, Mr. Rafi, and I respect him a lot. And at the first days, I was telling him that I'm very proud of my services and stuff like that. I'm at the moment that uh, I swear to you, my heart is feeling right now that I'm sorry uh, for myself serving them at that time. Because right now, nobody's there for me. I worked for them for several years. I worked for them every minute, risking my life. Because at that time, ma'am, everybody knows in Afghanistan, whoever Afghan was working for them, their life was a threat. But I never cared. I chose the right path, and I worked for them. And at the end, when now my life is a threat, and I cannot even go to my country, they're putting me in so hardship with my family. I wish could it could be only me. I would not care. Right now, they're risking my kid's life. They're risking my life. They're risking my wife's life. They're risking my whole family's life. And they don't even care. I emailed the Embassy of Canada several times to please have some mercy, not on me. If you don't want to take me, do whatever you want to do to me. But at least save my family. Every day my kid's life is ruined here. He's away from every freedom of life. The life that we are living here, I swear to you, ma'am, is worse than animals. Immigration minister is very proud that he took 40,000. Okay, congratulations for that. But sir, all thousand, all those thousand people who are living right here, and those all, the, all of them served you, and they're living in Lambo. What about them? Mohammed, thank you for your time. I hope you get answers soon. Okay, ma'am. Thank you very much. Thank you for giving me the time. Mohammed Yunus Nasimi is a former military contractor with the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan. We reached him in Islamabad. In a statement to As It Happens Today, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada said it is monitoring the situation closely and actively engaging with the government of Pakistan on the resettlement of Afghans and related issues. In a separate press conference this afternoon, Minister Mark Miller said he hopes to see flights from Pakistan to Canada in the coming weeks. When you think of Alberta, a few things might come to mind. The Rocky Mountains, the beautiful prairies, actress Alicia Cuthbert. But Alberta has another defining feature. It has long been known as a rat-free province. So it may come as a surprise to learn that the city of Calgary is facing a bit of a rodent problem. The province has confirmed that two recycling facilities in the city are the sites of ongoing rat infestations. Karen Wickerson is a rat and pest specialist with the province. We reached her in Airdrie, Alberta. Karen, given what's happening, can can Alberta really call itself rat-free now? Well, we are still maintaining our rat-free status. Um, And what that means is that we don't allow rats to permanently establish in the province. Mm -hmm. Rats do get into the province. I I can't inspect every vehicle coming into the province (laughs) along the highway. But when they are discovered in Alberta, we work to permanently eradicate them. But this infestation, how does it compare? It sounds like that the infestations happen from time to time. So how does this one compare? Well, this one, it's in a challenging environment. Or these, Both of these, I should say, because we have two facilities that ha- currently have them. 
And they are in recycling facilities that receive products out of our blue box. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, not all of these products that have contained food have been cleaned properly. As well, within the facility, there are places that the rats are able to nest away from us humans Mm -hmm. and go undetected. Is this the worst you've seen in a long time? Yeah, I've been in this position for four years, so definitely these are the biggest infestations I've had to deal with. The other probably most prominent infestation that people would be aware of was in 2012 at the Medicine Hat landfill, and that took two years to eradicate. So what's the game plan here? Uh, We're just being diligent. You know, um, we are in the facility every week. The facility has a pest control company. And we go in every week and monitor and basically change things up if they need to be. If we need to be looking at different areas of the facility to place traps and bait, then we do that. Have you seen them? Uh, On a couple occasions, yes. How many are there? I mean, ballpark, or how many have you killed? You know, it's really hard to put a number on it. We just go on uh, reports from the staff working within the facility and then the bait consumption. So since the 1950s, Alberta has had protocols in place to make it rat-free as much as possible. What is the secret in the province? Yeah, you know, the biggest secret is that (laughs) we started right when rats got to the border. The program was established. And we have legislation in place that states that every Albertan is responsible for controlling them because they are declared a pest in Alberta. So we're lucky. And is the, what's the monitoring like now? Uh, you know, a lot of it is public reporting to, to me. I have an email set up. Also, we still do patrol the Alberta-Saskatchewan border and inspect the first eight kilometres westward from the border, from Cold Lake all the way down to Montana, twice yearly, so, you know, in the spring and fall. Most of the reported rats I see per year are single rats, Mm -hmm. and the rats that have hitched ride on vehicles (laughs) from outside of the province. (laughs) So they're single rats. The makings of of an animated film. I see here. But. Exactly. Yes, yes, we could. There are many different versions uh, that we could make. And we know that there are rats all around us, essentially, and the jurisdictions all around us. So, you know, it's just something where we have to be very vigilant about it and encourage people to report to us if they think they see a rat. Are Albertans good at properly identifying rats? It's really interesting because, you know, if you've lived in Alberta your whole life, you may have never seen a rat. And so identifying one can be challenging sometimes. So 50% of the reported sightings I receive, and I receive four to 500 per year, are muskrats. Well, they're muskrats. But first, I have to say your inbox sounds like a scary place. (laughs) Yeah, it's... um, muskrats are are on the move in the spring and the fall and people often see them during the day a fair distance from water and you know um think that they could be a rat so yeah i i it it can be busy (laughs) what is your relationship given your job with with rats and i mean when something like this comes up does it feel like a like a huge failure what does it feel like to you to because this is such a big part of the province's reputation yeah it's it's a challenge uh, I admire the rat. You admire <laughs> they, the rat. They are highly adaptable. They learn how to survive in different environments. So it's just a constant challenge for me to try and hopefully stay on top of that and uh, just, yeah, encourage, get get the word out to the public, right? <laughs> you know, please, please send me photos. <laughs> and res- rinse your recycling. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Neil. Karen Wickerson is a rat and pest specialist. We reached her in Airdrie, Alberta. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness hanging from a trellis attached to their roof. The words of William Shakespeare. 
Was he writing about people who grow record-breaking zucchinis? Not literally, but if he were here and you asked him, could that apply to people who grow record-breaking zucchinis, he would say yes. Then he would probably ask you to explain airplanes. The point is, competitive zucchini growing is not for dilettantes. It requires expertise, patience, passion, and dedication. Giovanni Battista Scozzafava has all of the above in spades, <laughs> gardening pun. He holds the current world record for longest zucchini, as this report by CHCH-TV acknowledges. The Guinness World Record for the longest zucchini is 8 feet 33 inches, and the current record holder lives in Niagara Falls. Just a brief pause here to clarify that the record is not actually 8 feet 33 inches. That would be 10 feet 9 inches. He means 8 feet 3.3 inches. But, you know, if you're not in the record-breaking zucchini-growing business, the position of the decimal place probably doesn't seem as important. But... Henry D'Angela of Thorold, Ontario, is in the record zucchini-growing business, and business is good. Back to the CHCH report. I thought, I'll just let it keep growing. This uh, had been growing since probably about June, so it just continued to grow till about a couple weeks ago. It's hard to get a sense of just how long this zucchini is, so I'm going to try to show you a different way. I'm six foot one. This zucchini is almost eight foot five. To be precise, 8 foot 4.79 inches, which, if Guinness certifies it, would be a new world record. The result, as you heard, of months of unhurried, painstaking effort. But, as William Shakespeare wrote in Romeo and Juliet, wisely and slow, they stumble that run fast, trying to grow record-breaking zucchinis. Yes, that's, that's verbatim. Ivan Zinger says Canada's correctional system is a national travesty, and it's not the first time he's said it. Mr. Zinger is Canada's correctional investigator. The report he tabled this week is his seventh in the role, and in it he denounces, also not for the first time, the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canadian prisons and calls on the Correctional Service of Canada to transfer some of its authority back to Indigenous communities. We reached Ivan Zinger in Ottawa. Ivan, the Correctional Investigator's Office has been doing this for 50 years now. This is your seventh report, and things are getting worse. Why? Uh, I wish I I had the answer, Um, but unfortunately, year after year, we see the uh, over-representation of Indigenous people in uh, Canadian penitentiary uh, grow, Um, and it's been uh, going on for Uh, years and years and years, independent of uh, what government has been uh, in place. Mm -hmm. And and we should demand, um, you know, government cannot fix everything, but certainly they've got to make sure that their institutions do not uh, continue to um, do damage and continue the disadvantage and uh, and, uh, discrimination Mm -hmm. uh, against uh, Indigenous people. This time, one of the things you're calling for on Canada to do is to, quote, divest itself of the authorities, controls, and resources that have kept Indigenous people over-incarcerated, unquote. What exactly do you mean by that? What would that look like? Well, it's clear to me that the the current approach isn't working. And uh, we know that back in uh, 1992, um, it was actually the Moroni government that brought in some new legislation that allowed the Minister of Public Safety to enter into agreements with uh, Indigenous communities for the care, custody, or supervision of Indigenous people. Um, and unfortunately, the Correctional Service of Canada has been very, very timid at uh, implementing that legislation. Uh, and those agreement um, captures about uh, 139 individuals, which uh, represent about uh, 2% of the uh, Indigenous prison population. So it's just uh, been so timid um, so that is part of it. And the second part is that correction is actually running for healing lodges that were supposed to be transferred to Indigenous community, but has failed to do so. 
And uh, have we, as we've seen today during my press uh, conference, uh, there's certainly uh, some appetite and, and uh, uh, for uh, indigenous communities and organizations to take over those uh, four healing lodges. It's frustrating, it sounds like, to you. Very much so. You know, I, I remember back in 2001 when uh, uh, Jean Chrétien at the time, in a speech from the throne, you know, he was basically saying that, you know, you should reduce the percentage of uh, Indigenous people entering the criminal justice system so that within one generation, uh, you know, it would be no higher than the Canadian average. Um, uh, you know, since that was said... Uh, at the federal level, we saw uh, more than doubling. Uh, so we're up to 32% uh, of the uh, incarcerated populations are from Indigenous uh, descent. And when we look at uh, women in particular, we're up to now 50% or half of the women who are incarcerated in federal penitentiaries are Indigenous. Um, that's sound to me uh, as a, you know, a human rights violation. You, you know, you talked about the government-run healing lodges, but also there are some facilities run and administered by Indigenous communities through an agreement with, with Correctional Service of Canada already. So why do you think those institutions are not able to do more? Well, I think it's just a question of numbers. As I indicated to you, there's only 139 beds, uh, um, and unfortunately, um, uh, some of those beds are vacant. Um, and what we see is that there is some sort of two-tier healing lodge um, context where the ones that are managed by CSC are competing with uh, the one managed by uh, Indigenous communities and they are competing for resources and for residents. And um, the great majority of those who are incarcerated, so we're talking about 90% of those Indigenous uh, people who are incarcerated don't have access uh, and are denied access to the kinds of support they need in terms of uh, uh, ceremony, in terms of spiritual services uh, and, and healing services. Um, they're denied access. Let me ask um, you as well, sir. In Nathan Obed, Inuit Tapirit Kanatami President Nathan Obed was with you at that news conference as well as were other leaders. I just want to play a little bit of what Nathan Obed had to say. Our high poverty rates, our inadequate housing, our lack of access to health care services, our um, challenges in relation to poverty uh, uh, and food security all play into what we are seeing. And our position has been and continues to be that upstream investments um, in Inuit and Inuit socioeconomic equity in this country will lead to healthier, prosperous, safer communities and uh, decrease the rate of um, representation in federal corrections. So so given what Nathan Obed said there, Ivan, is fixing the prison system really the answer? Is that going to solve it? Oh, I absolutely agree with everything uh, uh, President Obed said. When you look at, uh, at who are the men and women who are incarcerated in our federal penitentiaries, you can use uh, that profile of those individuals uh, to sort of, uh, as a barometer, to gauge the success and failures of our broad public policies. Um, those entering the, the prison system are, are individuals that are disadvantaged in one way or another. There are lots of strong words in, in your report, um, including when you call Corrections Canada, that, that you say it's guilty of, quote, organizational paternalism and having a, quote, incapacity for self-reflection. So do you think change is even possible? Well, I think it's going to take a lot of uh, courage um, uh, politically to uh, force corrections to to change. And uh, correction is long overdue uh, to uh, take a step back, look at its practices, and uh, and do what's right uh, and ensure that uh, uh, those who uh, are able to uh, carry out their sentences in an environment that is better responsive to their needs, uh, whether it's, you know, issues around mental health or 
in diversity, uh, they have to do it. Um, and uh, otherwise, we'll just continue to uh, to have uh, institutions that, uh, unfortunately, uh, are unresponsive. Uh, and that's what the report, my report, was all about. Ivan, thank you for your time. Thank you. Ivan Zinger is Canada's correctional investigator. We reached him in Ottawa. We reached out to the Correctional Service of Canada and Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc. The CSC responded with a lengthy statement and response to the investigator's report, which read in part, quote, We are very attuned to the issue of overrepresentation and continue to make efforts to improve outcomes for Indigenous peoples. You can find the rest of the statement and response on the Correctional Service of Canada website. Chris Roberts plays the guitar. Seth Bai plays the fiddle. Together, the two British musicians are the folk duo Filkins Drift. And over the past couple of months, they've been touring. They've played dozens of gigs all over Wales. But they didn't travel from show to show on a tour bus or helicopter. They walked 1,400 kilometers. Their tour wrapped up this week when we reached Seth Bai in Gloucestershire, England. How are your feet, Seth? My feet are holding up very well, actually. We've all been surprised that <laughs> we've had very few blisters, no problems at all. Have you been doing any, you know, uh, routines, rituals to make sure they stayed okay? When we started out, we were doing a lot of stretches every morning and evening. And then, to be honest, we just got busier and busier with the gigs and tour that we kept forgetting to make time for stretching. But actually, our bodies have just adapted and I've got no aches and pains despite having walked quite so far. So just to be clear, no, nothing with wheels, no cars, no bikes, no transportation. Absolutely no transport. Often we'd rock up for a gig and uh, the organizer of the venue would say, you know, you can park your support van around the back. <laughs> and we'd say, no, we've got no support. That defeats the point. We're carrying our instruments on our backs and we've been walking for two months. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Uh, Chris and I both love walking and the outdoors. And we realized that the music industry had a bit of a problem in that it's not the most sustainable it could be. And there's many artists that are doing these massive tours and just so many vehicles and cars that are on the road. And we wondered if there was a better way to make music. So we looked back to the ancient Welsh bardic tradition and where we discovered that actually the acts of roaming and of making music have been intrinsically linked for centuries. But those are very different kinds of shows, very different kinds of performers, and they're international artists, right? So what if you want to take things even bigger for yourselves? For sure. I mean, that happens as well. We, we both are full-time musicians and we travel the country, normally doing festivals and venues and all sorts but we figured for this tour that we'd we'd act on a more local basis, so performing in tiny Welsh villages where there might only be a, a church or a pub, and then travelling through Cardiff, which is the capital city of Wales, and to other major cities. So we've really performed at a mixture of, of venue sizes and all sorts of places from a wetland centre to greenhouses to arts galleries and uh, conventional concert venues. How many shows in all? So in total, we did 50 shows in 59 days. Oh. So we had a few evenings off, but we were walking every <laughs> single day. We had new days off. Yeah, how did, you, how did you plan that? How Was every day different or did you say we're going to walk this many hours and then take a break and go, go that way? Every day was a little bit different depending on where we could book a gig. But the route was already predetermined. We knew that we'd walk either 15 or 20 miles most days and then perform a concert every night. So we just figured it out according to where we could play and what towns were on the route. But yeah, we'd walk every day, get up at nine, set off, put our boots on, keep going, stop at five, have some food and do a concert and repeat that for, <laughs> for 59 days. Did it foster a deeper connection or a new connection to the music for you? It did, just in terms of playing that much with each other every single day and also spending that much time together. Chris and I have been making music together for five years and know each other very well, but actually spending eight hours walking together every day and then making music, you know, we've deepened that connection between each other. And then we've 
took so much inspiration from the people we were meeting on the walk as well in terms of artists and storytellers and songwriters who knew all the folklore of their own local area. So it didn't break up the band. That's good. <laughs> no, we're still speaking. <laughs> on gigging next week. <laughs> Some other logistics, though. I mean, how much are you carrying on your backs? Uh, I guess you're not doing a lot of costume changes, but but you've got your instruments. You've got to have some clothes. No, we've we've had to strip our life back to basics <laughs> and every item we carry on our back. You know, you look at something and you're going to buy in the shop and you really have to think, do I want to carry this around for the next two months? So we've got our instruments. So for me, that's fiddle and Chris plays guitar. So I've got the better deal in terms of <laughs> physical size. And then we've also got some microphones. We've got CDs that we sell at the gigs and one prayer clothes to walk in and one prayer clothes to do the evening concert in. So it's really a minimal resources. <laughs> and laundry along the way? Laundry along the way when we hit town, when we can find it. You got to make sure you're fresh for the audience. Yeah, exactly. Just as long as they don't get too close. <laughs> <laughs> Any mishaps? Any shows missed? We've had some close run-ins. We've never missed a show, amazingly. But there were times it would get to five o'clock in the evening and the show might be at six. And we think, hang on, we've still got five miles to walk. And actually, the last stretch of the walk becomes less of a walk and more of a, a jog <laughs> up, a, up a mountain. We've turned up to some shows in waterproofs that have soaked through. We're dripping wet, have 15 minutes to, to stand under a hand dryer dry off and then uh, carry on as if nothing happened. You were committed to this project and, and you talked about the connections it fostered and how good you're feeling about it. But do you really think it, it's going to change concert culture? I think that we should rethink the way that we look at concert culture in terms of these, these major artists that are doing these tours. Sure, we need big venues to play in, but is there a more sustainable way that routes can be planned and the amount of waste that will go into a concert, can we rethink that and produce things in a more environmentally friendly way? And bring back music to a more localized approach. There's such a city-focused approach to live music these days. A major artist will play in a big city and people will drive for miles and miles and miles to see them and they'll be playing five nights in the same venue but what you know there's nothing wrong with moving location and attracting a different audience and saving the audience traveling as far as well and it's a more a more localized and sustainable way to move forwards with the music industry seth thank you thank you lovely to talk to you take care all the best that was fiddler seth by in gloucestershire england Here it as it happens, we like to think we know a thing or two about phones. I mean, for 55 years now, calling them has been our calling. But Doug Duffy may just have our number. The Belleville, Ontario man has a collection of telephones in his basement, and they are truly a callback to a bygone era. Mr. Duffy has been amassing them for more than 15 years, and he talked to the CBC about what he calls his old telephone room and how it all started. Well, when I was younger, I, you know, I, I would be uh, walking to school and going down through the new, new subdivisions in the 1960s, and uh, they were, you know, Bell Canada was down there putting up phone lines, and, and their trucks were out there, and I was, you know, interested in that. And then one day I was out at a thrift store, and I come across a phone, and something clicked. <laughs> <laughs> The receiver, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I guess what joy does it bring you, being able to, to have this collection, 400 items, you know, many of them phones. Uh, you know, when you look at them, what what does it do for you? Oh, it makes me feel great. I it, Every time I come down into this room and you look around, it is, it's awesome. The history that's down here, um, it, it makes you think, like, how did those things work? I mean, you look at it, I have pay phones. I have regular rotary phones, uh, I have prototypes, I have field trials, I have uh, engineering samples, and, and every one of them, to me, has a story and a little bit of a history. Yeah. So when I come in here, you know, it, it, it's 
like you're you're walking into, I guess, a museum. It's 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 not a museum, but it's that's what I feel like I'm walking into. Yeah, I mean, I I can I can just imagine it. Is, is there a story to one of the phones that that you feel is is exciting or that you can share with us? Well, the 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 one phone that I that I really enjoy is a 1971 Contempra, and again, I found that at at a thrift store, and it was it was in the bin and. It didn't look so nice. It was it was it was pretty raunchy, and um, I picked it up. But I I knew there was something different about it, and uh, I I paid two dollars and fifty cents for it, and brought it home, cleaned it up. Come to find out, it was a prototype, and I did a little research on it, and uh, I contacted um, John Tyson by mail and sent him some pictures and some information, and he returned my mail and uh, signed the le- signed the letters and signed the pictures and saying that I had uh, actually did find a prototype that he had designed. Oh, that is really cool. What, what, what did it feel like to get that response? Oh, awesome, awesome. The, the telephone community, when I, um, when I let them know that I had found it, it, it was it, like, it was, they were overwhelmed. They couldn't believe that a, a prototype was actually found at a thrift store mm. and that uh, John Tyson had, had confirmed that it was a prototype. Telephone collector Doug Duffy speaking with the CBC's Ramraj Sharvanderan about his most prized possession, a 1971 Contempra created by Ottawa-based designer John Tyson. Right now, it takes 10 years to become a family doctor in Canada. But as of 2027, that could stretch to 11. One extra year of residency doesn't seem like a lot in the long run. And the College of Family Physicians of Canada says that extra year will be used to teach doctors how to deal with complex patients and will actually help fix the doctor shortage. But those in the field don't necessarily agree. Last night, 91% of family doctors registered at the college's annual membership meeting voted to pause the addition of one extra year of residency. The vote is non-binding. Dr. Paul Dillon put the motion forward. He's a family doctor in BC, but we reached him in Oslo, Norway. Dr. Dillon, what in your view is, is wrong with a third year of residency? I think the overwhelming vote really came from a lack of transparency and lack of evidence to do this. Um, Even just on this trip over here to to Norway, I chatted with some other physicians and there is a global crisis for healthcare workers and people are getting more and more challenged to find a family physician in Canada. And I think this just made a very clear example of why we don't need an expansion of training because there's no evidence for it. And the most, I guess, damning part of it is, is the medical students and residents who are the future of family medicine, like the people who are going to provide that care in the future, have also come out really strongly against this. They've they've never were consulted. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying it's about transparency. I, it's about getting doctors, you know, to work faster because of the shortage. The college has said, though, that this will make physicians better, better prepared to deal with more complex patients, indigenous patients, uh, elderly patients, as well as mental health and addictions that they may come across in in their practices. So won't all of that help patients? Yes, people want doctors that they can see because there certainly is a shortage, but they also want to make sure those doctors are as up to date um, and fully prepared for their needs in those practices. Yeah, a hundred percent. But the college's own evidence shows that when you look at rural residency programs where people are embedded in a community and experiencing longitudinal care, they come out prepared. There is zero evidence. And I say it again, like there's zero evidence that there's poor health outcomes from the physicians that are going to be graduating every year. I, I would argue that they're providing exceptional care when you compare it to different systems. Now, the big question is they there's this kind of red herring where they say, well, other programs in other countries have longer programs. So therefore, we need a longer program. Well, it doesn't pass mustard, to be honest. It's a different system, different country, different outcomes. So I think we really need to be looking at what is the best for Canada. Where do you think the disconnect is coming from? Because they're physicians as well, right? The people who are are putting this forward, and as you are. So where's the disconnect? Why do you think the college is suggesting this then? I wish I knew. 
I honestly wish I knew. That's that's how this whole journey has kind of started for me. I just wanted to get board meeting minutes. Uh, and I just asked, like, why are we doing this? And I have not had a really good comprehensive answer as to why the decision was made. It seems to be a lot of after the fact, well, this is a good idea because X, Y, Z. But once again, like, I, I have no kind of skin in the game. It's really for the future of family medicine. And I think the number, like the thousands that came out and voted, uh, it was incredible. It was the largest number of people that have ever voted at a meeting. And like, I, I didn't influence it. All I've, all I've done is I've just asked the question of like, why? Show me the evidence. Uh, and the evidence isn't there right now to make this decision, which could cause harm. And it goes back to that initial concept or idea of do no harm. Like if, you, if you're going to put out a decision that could potentially cause harm, you've really got to have thought it through. And Why do you think it evidence. will cause harm? So if people choose to, this gets into a bit of a, a math and numbers game, but to, to do, say, a specialty, let's look at emergency medicine, for example. So you can do a five-year residency after medical school. So with this change, it all of a sudden changes to a four-year residency for people to do their family medicine for three years, do one additional year. Uh, it's another certificate that the college puts out. And then you've got to look at these graduates who are coming out with like $250,000 in debt. And there's a, a pay difference between emergency physicians who have the specialist designation versus family doctors. So someone who's looking at that much debt wants to start a family, they're going to say, well, you know what, if I just do one more year, I'm going to choose a specialty that's more well remunerated. Whereas now, if you're, you know, going gone through your first undergrad degree four years, then you've done four years medical school, and you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel by doing a two-year residency and getting out there and practicing, starting your life, starting your family, finding a community to settle down and practice in. There'll be less people that'll choose to do family medicine, and that really is the bedrock of our system. Like our system crumbles without a family doctor to go back to. When this was first proposed in September, we spoke with uh, the president, Mike Green, the president of the College of Family Physicians of Canada. We asked him about some of these concerns. Here's a bit of what he told us. I think that this concern about losing a whole year of family medicine hasn't been well understood. Those physicians are not lost to the healthcare system. They will be providing healthcare to Canadians in communities all across this country. And in fact, I think uh, that you will get at least as much, if not more, of the service that Canadians need in that third year of training than in the first year that they may have had in practice. He says that they're still going to be out there working and serving Canadian patients. I, I find it challenging for him to say that when they haven't actually figured out the plan at the 17 different programs of what's going to be in that third year. So it's, it's a bit of a presumption he's making where he doesn't actually have any plans yet. For our listeners uh, in Canada who are concerned about access to a family doctor, and they certainly want the situation to improve and improve quickly. What do you say to those Canadians listening? I mean, I'm hopeful that the college will listen to the voices of both current and future family physicians who want to be out there practicing full-scope family medicine. And the path to do that is going to be to improve the two-year training program and remembering that physicians never stop learning. You're clearly at an impasse. Where do things go from here? I mean, I think the ball is in the, the college's court now. I think the membership has spoken fairly clearly uh, across the country. And now it goes back to the college. I think the college knows they're non-binding. The signals that I kind of was sensing from the AGM, and it's obviously it's not in person, is that they're going to just go ahead. Um, I think that's a, a dangerous move for, for the body that's representing the future of family medicine in the country. Dr. Dillon, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you so much. Dr. Paul Dillon is a family doctor in British Columbia. We reached him tonight in Oslo, Norway. For years now, the Oakville and Milton Humane Society has been looking to relocate. The building where the shelter is is old, and it's time for an upgrade. And while the prospect of moving all its living inhabitants is daunting, staff are facing another challenge too. They'll be taking the deceased occupants of its sprawling pet cemetery along as well. 
So while they search for new digs, they've enlisted forensic science students from the University of Toronto to dig. Grace Gregory Alcock is among them. She's a second-year PhD student who's helping to supervise the excavation of the pet cemetery. We reached her in Toronto. Grace, did did you ever think that this is where your graduate studies would lead you, that you would be involved in relocating a pet cemetery? No, never when I thought about my graduate studies did I think that this was going to be something I would have the opportunity to help with, and I am so grateful for it. Describe the work that you're doing and the site for our listeners. Absolutely. So the site is a green space. It's in front of the Oakville Mountain Humane Society. Right as you drive in, you can see all the cemetery, and it's surrounded by these beautiful trees, which in the spring and summer was absolutely wonderful. Um, But there's about 500 pets buried on the property. So it looks very similar to what you would expect for a human cemetery or cemetery for people. And there's little stones that go around with um, the names of the pet, the family names, and usually a little dedication to the pet that's in there. So the work that we're doing is we're going in and documenting all the ones to make sure that what we have and what we find aligns with the map and the information that we have from the Humane Society. Mm -hmm. Because the cemetery was opened, I think, as early as the 1950s, so we do have quite a length of time for people to have been burying their pets, and sometimes information can get a little lost. And what does a typical day at the site look like for you and your colleagues? So a typical day at the site, usually we come in, Everyone gets all suited up in their safety equipment first off, and then um, I usually go around if I'm there, and I will take the beginning kind of day photographs, making sure that we know exactly what the grave looks like when we start um, before we actually excavate. And then you remove the plaque and the paving stone, and then you will begin the excavation. So usually if the grave has already been opened once before, the sod is already removed. So if someone is coming back to a grave that they couldn't finish the last time they were there. So some of them have taken a couple days to reach the bottom. You mentioned the length of time and the the varying records, the degree to which records have been kept for, for all of these different pets. So I'm sure there's been some un, unexpected discoveries as well. There have been a few. There have been a few. Um, there's been a couple where we have excavated all the way to the bottom of where um, it was reported that graves were dug until and uh, have not found anything. We have had a couple where we have been expecting it to be only one pet, and then we found another urn. Um, In one of those cases, um, I believe the family had actually just buried two of their pets in the same plot, but at different times. And there's also, uh, how does a KFC bucket fit into all of this? Um, So just like with humans, a lot of families believe mementos or items that belonged to their pet that the pet loved. So in one instance, we did have a pet that was buried with a KFC bucket and I believe also a peanut butter jar because the dog was known to love peanut butter and chicken. Oh, that's sweet. But it also sounds very, to some people may sound creepy. I know this is your work, but what do you say to, to people who have that feeling? I find it more touching. I definitely know it's not for everyone, but I think there's a lot of jobs and a lot of careers out there that may not be for everybody. And a big reason and a big motivator for moving the whole cemetery is that pet cemeteries are not granted or not governed under the same laws that a human human cemetery is under. So hypothetically, the new owner, if they did not want to maintain the cemetery, they could excavate everything and toss it, they could pave right over it. So when the Humane Society reached out to my supervisor, Dr. Rogers, and she was explaining this, and after she'd done her research, everyone felt it was the best idea and the most respectful step to go forward was to move the whole cemetery with them. And how how are the the pet's owners feeling about this? Uh, For the most part, what I've heard from the Humane Society is that the owners that they've been able to contact They have all been really, really grateful that we are taking the care and the time to move their pets with them. So, so far, it's been all good things from the families. And the other students who are working on this, you're supervising them. You've talked about, uh, you know, that you feel this work is important and special. How are they feeling about having this experience as part of their education? I think most of them are really excited. Honestly, I think a lot of them didn't think that this would be something they would get to experience in their undergraduate career either. 
it's an incredible learning opportunity for all of them. And every time I've come in, everyone is very excited. What what, do, what is what is it teaching them? This very unique experience. So I think twofold. Um, in a more general note, in forensic science, we always say that every case is different. No two crime scenes are alike. So every time you get to encounter a grave, a scene, something to collect, it's it's a good challenge for your brain. And every time you do it, you get a little bit faster. So for them, it's teaching them a lot about managing of the scene. They are responsible for their own grave, obviously under our supervision, but they get to be in control of that. So it's a great skill for them to know how to manage that scene. And then on the more specific side, they're getting really good documentation experience, making sure that they, when they encounter remains in the grave, that they're documenting it, that it's photographed, mapped in, if they find remains, collecting everything. And then the actual excavation experience, mm-hmm. being able to learn to find the grave walls so you know what the dimensions of your grave actually is supposed to be. It will be different um, texture in the soil, so you'll actually be able to find out where that solid earth is that was never disturbed when the grave was originally dug. How many of you excavated so far and how many left? Uh, so far we have excavated 15 to 20 for one of our courses that is there and for the other course I believe they're about 10 to 12. So if we're going off of, there's about 500 plots at the cemetery, so another 430 to go, 470, sorry. That's a lot of learning opportunities. Um, Grace, thank you for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Grace Gregory Alcock is a second-year PhD student in the Forensic Science Program at the University of Toronto. That's where we reached her. There's not a lot you can count on in this woolly, mixed-up world, but one thing that is guaranteed, no matter what, is that at least once a year, a sheep will show up in desperate need of a haircut after wandering around lost for years, and someone will give that beast enveloped in a thick duvet of fleece a funny name. The latest of these sheep is Sugar. She wandered away from her home in Australia about five years ago, and recently she was discovered in a cloud of unshorn wool hanging out with a bad element. She was living with a mob of kangaroos. Yeah, mob is the collective noun for kangaroos. Don't worry about it. In any case, sugar was unharmed by the marsupials, just very hairy, much like the sheep from New Zealand we told you about last year, Shrekapo, and the year before that, Barack, as in Barack Obama, but with two A's after the B, you get it. And before Barack, there was Prickles. Our former host, Carol Off, spoke to her owner, Alice Gray, in Tasmania a few months after the start of the pandemic, when most of us were also longing for someone to trim our bangs. Alice, last time we spoke to you, you described prickles as a glorious sight to behold, massive and fluffy. How is she looking today? Well, today she's looking quite a bit smaller. On Friday, we removed her huge fleece. And now she is yeah, quite a bit smaller and much, much faster running around the paddock. So how did she take to being sheared for the first time? Well, she was a bit nervous, of course, being in our shearing shed. And we had two different TV crews who turned up to watch because Prickles is a big celebrity in Australia. Uh, but she took it very well and she didn't protest at all. And the fleece came off very quickly. It took six minutes to shear her. Good heavens. I mean, that, I don't know much about sheep shearing, but I can't believe that that much wool came off so quickly. Were you surprised? I was surprised. The other thing we were surprised about was the weight of her fleece because she looked so huge and the outer you know, edge of her, her fleece was quite rough, which is why we called her prickles. And even the shearer was so shocked when he started to shear her because we found out she was a super fine merino meaning she has the most superb quality wool. And it was so soft and so white and so fluffy underneath that it came off beautifully and weighed much less than we thought. How much wool did you think that uh, Prickles had? Well, my guess was I thought she'd be about 20, 25 kilos, but it wasn't at all. What did you get? It was 13.6 kilos. But considering that a superfine merino usually has 2.5 kilos, 
she still had way more than your average sheep. <laughs> Being that it's the first time that this sheep has ever been shorn, is it a different quality? Is it? But does it come in quite fine because of that? All I know is it's absolutely superb wool, and and it was just so lovely to see it come off and her running around in the shearing shed, just looking quite relieved to have this huge load taken <laughs> off her. That was Tasmanian sheep farmer Alice Gray speaking to our former host Carol Off in May 2020. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.